over by an Aussie who never uses the word actress. With Ian Morrison, Gabriele Perez, Laura Greeson, Josh Hayes, Nal McCallum, and Jodcast, July 2018. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Laura and joining me in the studio are Niall. Hello. And Josh. Hi. Uh, in the show this time we've got Emma Alexander interviewing Christina Smith about life after the Jodcast. And Ian Morrison and Gabby Perez take a look at uh, what's happening in the July night sky. But before all that, here's Niall with this month's news. In the news this month... It has been almost a year since the coincidental detection of a neutron star-neutron star merger through gravitational waves by advanced LIGO and gamma-ray burst observations. Yet, still new information is being obtained from this event. This was the first detection of a neutron star-neutron star merger, which is oppressive enough as it is. However, many months later, the afterglow from the collision is still providing insight into the nature of this type of event. A paper has been released by researchers from the University of Warwick where the optical afterglow of the gamma-ray burst has been studied. This paper mentions the fact a jet of material has been ejected close to the speed of light from the neutron star-neutron star merger, but it is at an angle to us. This refutes some theories that the jets from such collisions would occur in all directions. This suggests that all neutron star-neutron star mergers create a gamma-ray burst but we have not seen them all due to the fact that the jet was not oriented towards us. As such, they could be occurring far more frequently than was previously believed, and the ability of advanced LIGO to detect such events opens up a new window to examine this. In other news, Enceladus, one of Saturn's moons, continues to wow researchers as they find evidence of complex organic molecules. Using NASA's Cassini spacecraft spectrometer, it has been found that the carbon-rich molecules are being ejected from the cracks in Enceladus' icy surface. Up until now, only basic organic molecules have been found with a few carbon atoms. So the discovery of these more complex organic molecules, some of which with masses up to about 200 atomic mass units, is exciting. This is further indication that Enceladus satisfies the requirements for life. In March of this year, one of the great minds of science, Stephen Hawking, was lost. However, still now his work carries on as one of his final papers has been published, which addresses some of the problems with eternal inflation. Inflation is a process of exponential expansion, which would take the quantum fluctuations of the early universe, and with some help from gravity, eventually generate the observable universe we see today. In internal inflation, the issue of anthropic principle, which is essentially the question of why is the universe such that we can exist, is addressed, as the theory results in infinite multiple universes, thus meaning our universe is one of an infinite number of possibilities. However, this has issues itself, as it makes it difficult to make any sensible predictions about the universe. Since any variety of universes can exist in this theory, it essentially makes multiverse theory impossible to test. In one of his final papers, Hawking and his colleague Hertog present a new method which produces a finite multiverse, which should thus be testable. That's another impressive piece of work from Hawking. Rest in peace, Professor. Thanks for that, Niall. Now Emma Alexander interviews an old Jodcaster, Christina Smith, about her life after the Jodcast, featuring atmospheric science, the Martian Curiosity rover, and penitents 
on Pluto. I am still not convinced I said that correctly. <laughs> Emma, go. I'm here with what will be a familiar voice to a lot of our listeners, I should hope. Welcome back, Christina. Christina Smith of Jodcast Fame. Is that the right word? I don't know. Fame? I was a veteran. <laughs> That's really all we can say. How does it feel to be back in the recording studio? It feels very good to be back in the recording studio. It's nice to see some familiar bits and pieces. <laughs> and a little weird to be on the other side of the microphone, yeah. if that makes sense. <laughs> And uh, so what have you been up to since uh, the heights of Jodcast? Oh, yeah. So I moved to Canada. <laughs> That's quite a big one, yeah. Relatively short-term move, shall we say. I've been in Canada for three years, and I've moved on more or less from uh, stellar astrophysics, which is what I was doing before, looking at kind of small dying stars. Now I work on Mars and Titan and Pluto. That is quite the change. Yep. Yeah. Want to go into a bit more detail as to what you've been doing? Yeah, so I've moved on to kind of atmospheric studies on Mars. I'm now part of MSL, uh, one of the MSL Mars Science Laboratory rover, which is kind of known as Curiosity colloquially. So I'm now one of the science operations team members. So the big question is, does that mean that you get to drive the rover? If by drive you mean plan, <laughs> uh, yes. So I'm a science team lead and keeper of the plan. So I'm one of the atmospheric group who kind of plans and uh, advocates for observations, for atmospheric observations. So what kind of stuff goes into planning such an observation, that, that kind of detail? Yeah, so there's quite a lot that kind of goes on. There's a lot of discussions that you have to take into account. There's a lot of constraints on various observations. And, you know, you have to take into account priorities of what people want to look at or what the rover has enough power to do and where you are in the current year, for example. If Mars has very, very different seasons and different things are of interest at different times of year for the atmospheres group. And, yeah, also location-wise, if we're an area that has some, like, really interesting bedrock visible, for example, then the geologists will want that's of a higher priority than, say, for example, looking for an atmospheric feature at that particular point in time. So what personally have you been looking at on Mars? So I've been doing a lot of simulations. I've been doing a lot of radiation transfer modelling. So I'm looking at the scattering, scattering of light through the atmosphere by dust in the atmosphere. And so I've been doing that to look at the amount of energy that gets down to the surface as a function of position on the planet and time of year. And then I've been using that into other models for various other things. So one was looking at methane production from the surface to see whether it could be produced from what's known as an interplanetary dust particle. So it's a particle that would sediment down and looking at whether or not that could create enough methane that we would see on Mars. I've used these models for application to various things and various phenomena on the surface and something that I'm going to be applying to hopefully soon as uh, looking at the amount of dust that we see in the lower regions of the atmosphere as a function of year. But that requires a bit more of a sophisticated model than I have at the moment, so I'm in the process of developing that. In the seminar that you have just given, it was a great seminar, by the way, I really enjoyed it. You were talking about how Mars has got different seasons where it's got it's more dusty or more cloudy. Could you give us a little bit of information about the seasons of Mars? So the way that we kind of think about seasons on Mars is we define it by solar longitude. And we define that, we divide the year into 360 degrees, and we start at springtime in the northern hemisphere, and we go round. So zero is spring in the northern hemisphere, like the spring equinox, 
and then you get to 90 and you're you know the height of summer in the northern hemisphere and round and so on but mars is quite elliptical in its orbit when we think of any given time in like a one degree period or a 10 degree period if you were to look at the summertime the length of that in comparison to the length of the winter in the same hemisphere they wouldn't necessarily be equal yeah so we have these quite varied seasons because it has quite an elliptical orbit and in one season we find it's very very dusty and that's when mars is closest to the sun and when it's furthest from the sun we get cloudy season which is called the athelian cloud belt season helium because it's furthest from the sun and the cloud belt is around the central equatorial-ish latitudes those clouds are formed of water ice Oh, wow. So it's not water vapor, it's water ice? Ice ice particles, yeah. Kind of like cirrus clouds on Earth. Oh, okay. Um, And it's interesting because you actually see clouds like that in other places as well. Like, they exist in kind of Jupiter's atmosphere, but made of ammonia rather than water ice. We see them on Mars, and high-altitude clouds are seen in a lot of places. But on Mars, they're very, very thin. If you were standing on the surface of Mars looking upwards, most of the time you wouldn't be able to see them. You'd only be able to see a faint hint of them on the cloudiest of cloudy days. Hmm. So do you do much comparison between Mars and Earth? You mentioned Jupiter as well. Are there any major similarities? Is there anything that Mars is particularly different from the other planets? So Mars has a carbon dioxide dominated atmosphere, which is pretty different from any of the other ones. Interestingly, though, kind of nitrogen dominated atmosphere like us, but still it's a very, very different setup. I mean, Mars has a very, very thin atmosphere, so we measure it in millibars. Earth has one bar, a thousand millibars. And on Mars, it's, you know, six to nine and a half millibars. So it's very, very, very low in comparison. The pressure is, surface pressure is very, very low in comparison. It's also very small, relatively. Although not in comparison to kind of other bodies in the solar system, but relatively it's about half the size of the Earth. So it's pretty small. Going back to what you were saying about the pressure in Mars's atmosphere, you were saying in your seminar that it fluctuates quite wildly over the year. What's the cause of that? That's because you kind of actually get carbon dioxide in the atmosphere freezing out onto the polar cap. So when it's winter in one hemisphere, that will draw down carbon dioxide. And one winter is longer than the other, as I was mentioning from the different season lengths. So that means the one polar cap has time to grow longer and pull down carbon dioxide and freeze out. Yeah, so that's why the pressure does actually fluctuate a a lot from, you know, around kind of six millibars to nine millibars. And there's more temperature variation on Mars as well, right, than you get on Earth? Yes, there's quite a variation. At a given time of year, there's much more variation than you find on Earth. But my fun fact of the year is that over this winter, there was a day when it was colder in Toronto than it was at Gale Crater on Mars. (laughs) That's quite something. I'm not sure if that's telling me how warm Mars was or how cold Toronto is. I've I've never been to Toronto, so... It was telling how cold it was that day in Toronto. (laughs) And it's not just been Mars that you've been looking at. What else have you been up to? I've also been doing some work on Pluto. Uh, We were looking at bladed terrain on Pluto, so... What's bladed terrain? Bladed terrain is... So there's a region on Pluto known as Tartarus Dorsa, which is to kind of orient you. If you look where the heart is, it's on the right-hand edge, lower-ish, on the right-hand side. And it's described as kind of snakeskin terrain because it looks kind of very snakeskinny. And what it actually is, is these huge blades basically of ice that are 
500 meters high and you know three to five kilometers separated my fun fact is you could fit the CN Tower in it <laughs> and you can tell I've been living in Canada <laughs> yeah so there are these huge peaks and troughs and we kind of looked at them to see whether or not they could be humongous versions of what we see on Earth, which are these ice blades known as penitentes. But on Earth, they're a couple of meters high, you know, tens of centimeters in separation. So they would be really, really enormous. And we kind of, we did simulations of the atmosphere and then we did simulations of the actual process that creates these penitentes. We use the model that's used to model them on Earth and replicate them well on Earth. And yeah, we found that what was coming out of the models was giving us separations of three to five kilometers and you know they were formed only in methane ice and not nitrogen ice and the orientations we were seeing lined up it was an interesting piece of work um, and it was my first foray into pluto mm. so um that was with new horizons data was that it? was using one image from new one horizons. image wow okay are you expecting to get any more new horizons data and you'd be able to do any more work from that or is that your lot for now so i'm actually not part of the new horizons team at all so this was just one of their images which was publicly available and so we saw it we were interested by it and so yeah okay so if any more data were to become available could that spark your interest again in it Potentially, potentially, but I believe we've had all of the imagery that's coming back because it's kind of way beyond Pluto now, mm. going out towards the Kuiper Belt. And if you got the chance to send something else back to Pluto, oh yeah, you, oh yeah, definitely, definitely, always, always more, more spacecraft. <laughs> yeah, it'd be nice because we don't just have that one image. It would be nice to see it different light, different times of year, closer in, you know, because it's, you know, it's our best guess at the moment, from my opinion. Other people have different ideas, so it would be very interesting to get more data. If you could send a spacecraft anywhere in the solar system or beyond, would it be to Mars, would it be to Pluto, would it be to uh, anywhere else? Oh, that's difficult. Can only send one. So Mars has a few in the pipeline already, so I feel we've got Mars pretty covered. But, you know, beyond that, definitely. But if I had the chance to send one... Titan would be really cool. I'd like to go back and see from the surface of Titan as uh, you could have something that could survive the conditions. I mean, the icy moons are interesting, but I would be worried about planetary protection. But, you know, there is a mission in the pipeline for Europa, I believe, or at least in the planning phase. So, and then there's, you know, Venus is really interesting as well. So it'd be very, very difficult to choose one. <laughs> So yeah, if it could do, you know, flybys of multiple planets, let's go with that. I think the question that I have is, so you, you've talked about all your work that you've done on atmospheres and, and rocks. How did you get into that from what you were doing for your PhD? Because that was in something quite different. Yes, yeah, so I was doing evolved stars, so looking at small dying stars. But the techniques that I was using and the techniques that are available to analyse things like that are very, very similar across multiple objects. You know, you, you have to kind of get up to speed with some parts and some areas of science, but the underlying methods that you use to analyze an image from the surface of a planet or simulate the atmosphere is very similar to the method that you use to simulate the atmospheres of a star, but you have to very different conditions and there's a ground. <laughs> Important thing, there's a ground. But yeah, there's a lot of transferable techniques and transferable methods and skills. And uh, another question... Have you been doing anything at all that could compare to the Jodcast? 
I was on a podcast for a while. I was there. Okay. So York has a live podcast that goes out on Astronomy FM. It's York Universe, and so I've been on there a few times. Going live was a scary, scary thing. I know from doing Jodcast myself, the, the comfort of having an editor uh, listening yeah. in and, yeah. But no, live does sound pretty scary. Yeah, there was one one time, because it has been a while now since I've been on, but I, yeah, I was in my apartment and there was some building work going on outside, so I had to mute my microphone and apologise over chat to everybody else who was on the show and say, sorry, you're going to have to take it over because there's drilling outside my window. <laughs> I mean, we've been having some building work going on around where we record the Jodcast, but I don't think we've had anything too bad so far, although you might disagree if you've been listening and can hear random bangs <laughs> in the background. So what work is coming up in the future for you? What are you looking forward to doing? Oh, so there's a couple of things. I'm in my last year out in Toronto, so I'm kind of looking forward to doing some applying my model to MSL data so looking at kind of using the widest number of images I can to look at how much dust there is in Gale Crater because you can do it without using a model and making a number of assumptions if you're looking at true north at noon and you can see the floor the crater rim and the sky we've been using that but there are a lot more images that are taken so there are a number of cameras on MSL on Curiosity and some of them are used for navigation and some of them which they're also calibrated so we can use them for science but there are there is another imager called MathCam that we also use but for this kind of dust loading we use the navigational camera and when the rover traverses or when there are other things of interest that it's imaging it takes images at various regions and various times of day so I'm interested to use as many of those as possible to kind of look at the dust within Gale Crater. Basically, if I can see the crater rim and a bit of the floor and a bit of the sky using a model, using my atmospheric model, I'll be able to process those. So that's kind of the primary thing that I'm going to be looking at. And if I get a chance, I'd also like to dabble a bit with the Jupiter. <laughs> There's some pretty awesome images coming in at the moment, so it'd be really interesting to try and apply the methods that the group that I'm working in at the moment is using for Mars and apply that to to Jupiter's atmosphere. Is that from the Juno spacecraft? Yeah. 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 That seems to me like that's a completely different situation though because I mean you've got Mars's you know, reasonably thin atmosphere and then you go to Jupiter which is I mean it's just all atmosphere really. I mean I'm no planetary scientist so I've probably have said something <laughs> controversial there but uh, is it really something that you can apply to such a different situation? So certain types of clouds have similarities across multiple planetary bodies. The high cirrus clouds that we see on Earth, kind of the very high thin clouds, they're very much like the ones that we see from the surface of Mars. They're also kind of similar ice crystals. And on Jupiter, the highest clouds are ammonia ice. So different, but, you know, there are similarities and parallels you can draw. So it'd be interesting to look at properties of those. Interesting. Now, I'm quite conscious that you have a train that you need to go catch. Um, yes, I'm afraid so. Yes, but thank you very much for joining me and coming back to the Jodcast and for being proof that there is life after your PhD. <laughs> yes, there and is. after the Jodcast. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks for coming back. It's been great to have you. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for that, Emma. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all the other bits we can't fit anywhere else, and that's the odd and ends. Okay, so my odds and ends this week is a paper that only came out a few days ago. I think we're recording this on a Monday, and it came out on the Friday just before this. 
So it's a paper that's in the Nature Partner Journal called Science of Learning, and it's about intrinsic gender differences in children's earliest numerical abilities. And I guess this paper, and they, they say this, it's motivated by recent public discussions about women being underrepresented in science, technology, and engineering, and mathematics, or STEM fields, because there's actually an intrinsic aptitude difference in mathematical ability. Um, so it was motivated because there's a lot of discussion at the moment that about the fact that we don't have as many women in science as men, and that's because women aren't as good at maths, full stop. But this paper then makes the argument that if that's true, then that should be evident from the very start of life, basically. So young children who have had less cultural and societal influence, because as soon as you're born you have cultural and societal influences, um, when they put a pink hat or a blue hat on you, but less then if it is truly an intrinsic gender difference, then there should be a difference from straight away, basically. Mm -hmm. So they test this in a variety of different ways, but they test this for children between six months and eight years old. So they do three sort of chunks, I guess. They, they take very, very young babies who are about six months old, and then they look at kids who are about three to five years old, and then they look at sort of older five to eight age groups. So they test three different things. Something called numerosity perception, which sounds really complicated, but it's it's the ability to judge two groups of objects, which group has more in it. So if I put, I, I don't know, five pens in front of you and four mobile phones, can you immediately look at that and say there's more pens than phones? And Probably this, with that many. Maybe not when it gets to like a thousand or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, studies have already been done on this skill in general, and when you're young, you can do things that are sort of two-to-one ratios. Mm. So it doesn't matter how many there are. If there are 50 of one thing and 100 of another, then you're sweet. Um, and the older you get, I think the best about that a human can do is a 10 to 9. So if you had 19, 100 of something, then as adult humans, we should be able to point to which group has the most in it. Probably, but I only deal in dots. Yes. Well, they <laughs> use dots in this test, so that's okay. <laughs> so that was, the, that was the first test. The other test was verbal counting acquisition during preschool. So that's whether you can, well, basically whether you've acquired the skill to be able to count. And that's an early test because the first sort of skill that children learn is to sort of just memorize the numbers. They don't actually associate, if they say the number three, they don't actually conceive of three objects. They just remember that three was between two and four. But they don't actually understand that that means three objects. But the other thing is, if I said, can you give me three pens, can they actually perform that skill? So one is counting as just a basic skill, and the other is whether they actually associate a number with a quantity of objects. And then the final set for the older children was um, taught mathematical skills, so the basic skills that you learn in the first few years of primary school. Um, and that was, uh, they used unpublished and published data based on standardised tests for that particular skill. That one must be far more difficult, though, because they'll all have been in different, they, they, or they may have been in different primary schools and they may have had teachers who were biased towards male or female teaching as well, right? So that becomes yeah. a bit of a... Yeah. Minefield. Yeah, so already, um, I mean, I guess I guess you could sort of use that as a little bit of a test, but what, what they do is they, they do a few different types of statistics as well. Right. So they do a T-statistic test, which just says whether the numbers are, are similar, basically, whether the mean value of any of these statistics that they're doing is, is similar between the two, but they also do a test 
whether there's equal variance. So there's quite a few different arguments about the gender difference. One, it's just different, full stop. So if I, if I gave 10 maths questions to a bunch of girls and 10 maths questions to a bunch of boys, the boys would get more of them right, full stop, easy. But the other idea is that there's a greater variance. So there's more boys at the top and the bottom. So there are more boys that are really good and really terrible at maths and that girls are kind of in the middle, that they're, they're not spread out as much in, statist- in the statistics. They test that as well. They're all together. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> See, working together, equality, great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they also test, the final thing they test is whether, so they, they basically do a fit with age as well. So whether hmm. if the, the slight differences, if you kind of fit a line and say in 10 years, how good would they be based on this initial data? Does it vary? Does that line end up, splitting widely later. So they take data from young kids, from a range of young kids, and then they fit a line to that and say, 10 years in the future, is this set of boys going to be better than this set of girls, just by fitting a line to it? Just like a linear fit or a, Um, like... I think it's just linear, but I'd have to double-check that. Yes, so they fit a a line to it, basically, as well, just to see if that... Like if, if you just left sort of them the yeah. way that they are, yeah. if you were to sub- subject them to the biases of like real world teaching, oh, so yeah. Yeah, exactly. you're accounting for the idea that if you've got a group of boys who are better than a group of girls, but the group of girls gradient of mm-hmm. improvement is higher in ten years. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or if they're starting at the same place, are their gradients different? I yeah. guess you could say. And it also means that like they are they aren't subjected to like, well, we tend to encourage girls to be better at English mm-hmm. and we tend to encourage boys to do physics and maths and stuff. Which yeah. I like to think we're getting a bit better at not doing, but it's still oh, you know still, well. still time to <laughs> you know, there's still stuff to do. I mean, I only mean like we're getting a little bit better. I'm not suggesting yeah. it's fixed. I just mean yeah. like, yeah, we're, we're, we're trying. Laura's here. Yeah. Yeah. She must be fixed. We have a woman. Right. One woman is great. Um, so One I would... third of our statistically relevant sample is three, <laughs> which, become, which is between two and four, I've heard. I, if you're interested in this stuff, though, I would genuinely recommend at least reading the introduction of this paper because it does have a lot of links to lots of other papers and research. And it's interesting to see, even if you match the, the, the research and their findings to kind of the year that the study took place. Is and it a publicly results. available paper? Actually, I'm not sure, but we can put up, we can check that. We can check that and link it. Yeah, if we can, if we can find an archive link, we'll, we'll link it there. Yes. Oh, interesting. It's an all-female lawful list. Yes, it is. That's it cool. Is. So, yeah, they've got a lot of interesting um, studies that they mention in the introduction, and I guess the results of every study basically says something different so far. The, fir- the earlier studies say men are better, obviously, so much better, um, and then later it gets a bit more hazy, and depending on what you test, and I think even now studies are getting a lot more clear about what they actually do, mm-hmm. which is an important step. <laughs> so, so the issue is if you're using archival data, it's coming from a time where we were biased towards, oh, men are better at this. So, like, that's always going to be difficult. I mean, I, I, I think that probably still exists. Yeah, like, exactly, some, yeah. some, like, So, Laurie, your point about all of these conclusions are really different. I think mm-hmm. it would be really interesting to look at the conclusions based on the proportion of gender split of the authors. Yep, yep, the gender of the authors and how many... So a lot of the, the studies are also, you know, say, 20 kids. Mm. 
and then they say, but there's a huge difference in all those 20 kids. Yeah. So that's a bit... And so 20 is not really statistically relevant at no. all, right? No. So, so it's sort of becoming a... I think, I think there are more than 20 kids in the world. Probably. Yeah, just a, just a couple yeah. more. <laughs> I've heard this. <laughs> I have it on good authority. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if it's good authority, but just like yeah. by eye. Yeah, I, like I, you, using my ability to to look at two different groups of yes, objects. Your numerosity. My numerosity. Yes. Um, yeah, I think there might be more than twenty. Yes, I, I feel that. <laughs> <laughs> so the first set that they test are uh, eighty six month old infants, and they it's kind of really nice to read a statistical paper because they quote at every they say six months, but then they actually give you their exact mean of their age and things like that, which is just nice to read. And I find this one particularly interesting because what they do is they put two image, sets of images in front of a infant and one set of images is changing. It's dots, so it's dots. So one image is a certain number of dots and that stays the same the whole time. And the other set of images of dots changes. So if the, the set image says four dots, then the other one might go from five, ten, and then just and then they see which numbers the infants look at. Which, which stream the infants look at. And apparently, I think I'd have to read a lot more papers about this to really get it. Believe it? it. Yes. <laughs> yes. I wasn't going to say that because I'm sure it sounds, but I just don't have the background. The infants prefer to look at the one that was changing. I think if, I'd prefer to look at the one that was changing. No, no, only though if the um, difference between the one that's changing and the one that's stationary is two to one. The ratio of the dots is two to one. So they looked Either at the way. changing one if the numerosities differed by at least a two to one ratio. So at least a two to one ratio. Yes. So if if you I don't know had four and you have ten, yes. they still look at they the still ten. look at they still look at the one that's changing. Okay. To be honest. As a physicist, that sounds dodgy. That sounds I, very yeah. dodgy. I, like I, as a kid, I just like I don't think I think I just moving. be like, oh, that's moving. I'll look at the other one in yeah. case that one's moving. Oh, no, it's yeah. not. I'll look at that one again. That one's moving. Yeah. <laughs> are those object permanence at that point? Like, yeah. Like, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure that this has got some... But, yeah, there's yeah. clearly something to it. I mean, yeah, we deal with stars. We yeah. don't deal with fleshy mm-hmm. yeah. people. Gooey things. Uh, yeah. yeah. So this is actually previously <laughs> published data that they reanalyzed. And I mean, there's a lot of standards of these things for testing babies and mm. things like that, and I guess you just do the best that you can. That's fair. But they still found no significant difference in the mean of the numerosity ability of these children. So girls were just as likely to look at two-to-one ratios as boys. They didn't find any any difference in the variance, so they were basically the same width. The distribution is the same width, and there was just generally no difference between infants looking at two-to-one ratios. Did it say not. how many pictures they went through by any chance? I think they do. So they have a lot of extra information in right. sort of the appendix, oh, okay. um, which yeah. I, didn't, I didn't go through in too much detail. But, yeah, they, they do include all of that extra information is there, cool. which I think is very important in this sort of study. I think it's very important in any study. Yeah. I'm, I'm genuinely really impressed by the fact that this paper is properly providing all of its numbers. Yes, they're there throughout the whole thing. It's really nice to read. So then the next the next age group they test was three to seven year olds, but with a mean age of five point four eight years, one hundred and twenty five of whom were girls and one hundred and sixteen boys. So we're getting a lot more than twenty now, which is good. And again, they found no difference in the numerosity, and they also tested all those other things that I talked about, and basically they found no difference in all the age groups. 
the whole thing. I don't really need to go through each one individually. What they were doing at all in that particular case, because obviously they're old enough to be able to at least vaguely grasp, oh, you should look at the moving one if it's two to one. or clicking. So they they choose, they actually select the image which has more. Ah, I see. So they just have to see which is... Okay, that's cool. Yeah, so they... Yes, so they found that that's good. And with with all the numerosity ones as well, they found a correlation with age, of course, so as you get older, you get better mm. at finding the difference between two sets of numbers, but no change with gender. So if you fit that line to it, as they get older, they found that boys and girls should end up the same. The, the difference doesn't become more significant as they get older, the gender difference. So again... For all the other, the culturally trained counting, which is, they, they asked them to count from 0 to 100 and stop when they couldn't keep going. They found no difference, again, with the, the younger children. So obviously not infants, they can't what, count. What age was this? So these were the, the two, between two and five okay. years. So the first task was called how high, and that's count to 100, and they just cut it when they started getting things wrong. I got to a gazillion and one. <laughs> yeah, <way. exactly. laughs> 31 million. Because um, anyone older than 10 was just really old. I, I remember being told that when I was like 15. I, a small yeah. child. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like that. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I'm sure our listeners are loving the fact that us are like in our prime 20s are saying, I feel old. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, I, I'm the youngest one on this panel. Yeah. Like, Josh, Josh, we need to test his zero to 100 counting skills we won't do it here but maybe after we'll get into count to 100 sorry please excuse i was just pouring myself some coffee <laughs> what, what's counting i just get a computer to do that, <laughs> yeah, these <laughs> and the other test that they did was say give me three pens or four water bottles or whatever and just did that that test and similarly like the other test no difference mm-hmm. they found that the same me that a, a statistically insignificant difference between the mean and a statistically insignificant difference between the variance. Um, so the spread, the mean and the spread of both get boys and girls are the same, effectively. So, so there's no two, to five, two to five when they're not actually in primary education at this point. Yes, yes. Mm. But, but most children are taught to... No, no, no. I, I'm, I'm, yes. I'm interested in when schooling yes, kicks in. Yes, yes. So, so it depends on your parents a lot as well. Yeah. Point, right? yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. So that that so again no difference between counting um, and then the same thing when they use the the formal and informal early elementary mathematics test. So this is the school age children who were aged. I think the mean age was about five and a half. So probably first year of primary school students, and that was nearly two hundred children, about half and half boys and girls. So that's so not nearly two hundred, nearly three hundred children about half and half um so they were a they took data from a school-based mathematical test sort of an aptitude test that tests both informal and formal mathematics i think to get the definition of those that's actually good maybe read the paper but again didn't find any statistical statistically significant differences so even in that first starting school there's still no significant difference and no significant difference between the trajectory either if you try and measure how good they're going to get later in life should be no different i suppose for me the the most interesting part as well as all these numbers which are just nice because they're nice (laughs) (laughs) the the most interesting part to me is the discussion where they talk about um previous 
studies and, you know, things like how many stu- children were tested in the past and um, all that sort of stuff, which we kind of discussed it in the, in the um, introduction as well. But they also talk about possibilities for why things become different later on, um, which I think is, is interesting because some of it seems, I guess, kind of obvious, like if uh, people are talking around children and say things like, oh, but boys are just better at math, then uh, that's called stereotype threat. And it's where if you hear all your life that because of your gender, you're going to be terrible at something or that the other gender is just going to be better, then you just are, they are better because you feel like you, you can't do it. And they also... Like I can't cook. Yes. Yeah, so if we say Niall can't even... cook around him a lot, then he won't be able to cook. <laughs> I have tried his food, he can't. <laughs> Josh enforcing stereotype threats. This isn't stereotype. This this is this <laughs> is a public health warning. <laughs> I meant more because like you know, yeah, no, I know. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just I'm just taking pot shots at you. Yeah. It's fine. Sit there. Take like, it. I never got bought a new make oven like my cousin, who's a girl, did, for instance. Like, That's true. Um, so it, it goes the other way for other so softer skills. Girls are encouraged to you know be able to read people better and and things like that because we have to be sensitive. We're taught to be sensitive. So the other way it goes as well. I've just I've just started learning to knit, and it's great. And I wish that I'd been taught to do it at a younger age. Mm. Yep. But like, <laughs> I it, it was My just it was, it was never even offered, and I didn't get taught to knit. Yeah. I don't yeah. like to have been taught to knit. Yep. <laughs> yep. They they do mention that they said their parents are a huge huge influence. Your parents. Mm. I guess, expectations for you. Like if you come home and say I got ninety mm. percent in a maths test. And they say, oh, my gosh, that's the most amazing thing ever. Whereas your brother comes home and gets 90% in a math test, and they just go, oh, yeah, fair enough. You're a boy. You should have got 90%. Then that, even little things like that where you think you're being encouraging, I guess, little things can make a big difference. Also, teachers are more likely to encourage boys to ask questions. They're more likely to call on boys for questions and uh, comments in maths and science classes. They're more likely to spend more time in class with boys, and they're more likely to praise boys for anything inside Something I have found when I've been in classrooms, like not, so for context to listeners, I do a lot of workshops with uh, various, with (laughs) schools. Just wandering around classrooms. Yeah, no, I run run physics workshops with with school children of various ages. And one of the things that I've always found really difficult is exactly that, is choosing who to, in the event of nobody speaking up, who do you actually call on? Because so when I most most children that I work with are probably year nine, year ten, so that'll be like what, fourteen, fifteen years old? Um, like puberty age where yeah. you you have people playing up and you have people not wanting to play. Oh yeah, no. Like. It, it, <laughs> I I find that even if you do call on a girl, quite often they will just refuse to answer and you'll get a boy jumping in with an answer or even if even at that, at that point, it's almost too late. Yeah. Um, I mean, in that case as well, though, puberty means that we're all testosterone up and are more likely to go shouting out answers, right? Yeah, but like at the same time, you can you can be quiet. Oh, I agree. Like, it's, oh, no, I'm not suggesting that it's like a, you will have to do that. I'm suggesting that that does bias it towards boys answering more. It, it's actually probably. it's actually more that women are taught that our our contribution is not valuable mm. from a young age because boys are called on more. From yeah, a young I'm, age. I'm not suggesting that doesn't happen. I'm yeah. just suggesting there are other factors that you have to think about. Yeah, but um, but I guess I guess just like like Josh said, you can also teach boys mm. 
to not do that. Mm-hmm. But because boys are encouraged to contribute, it's considered almost good behaviour to jump in and interrupt and say, oh, but I know the answer. Oh, God, that's, that's so annoying. <laughs> so, like, well, yes, yes, Jeremy. Yes. Like, no, <laughs> arbitrary name, I've just been reading the politics pages. Um, <laughs> yes, Jeremy, like, I know you know this, you've answered four questions, let Susan answer. Yes. Like, it's one of the most infuriating things I've come across. So it's, I guess I guess it's nice. The, the introduction is nice because it mentions all the other studies, but the, the, the discussion is also nice because it mentions all the other factors that could be contributing to all of these issues. But I guess for some people this might come as a surprise, but for me it was kind of like, oh, yeah. When, when, this, when this study came out on, on Twitter on Friday, there was a lot of Twitter about it. I just went, yeah, did we need this study for this? But I guess we did. <laughs> I, like, I don't think we in the yes, studio exactly. needed it. But I, like, for a lot of... And I, I, I think actually we are quite fortunate here in Manchester mm-hmm. that we are aware of this yeah. and we are all conscious. Like, there are various... I mean, like, even at like, our level of profession... There are various institutions around the country or around the world that are completely head in the sand about this. So actually, a nature paper on it, yeah. I, I can good. see that. Also, they need to they do need to bring these sorts of things out because there have been papers like in the not too distant past which are talking about left brain versus right brain and, mm. and developing it different amounts in women and men. So like I guess like. Yeah, you need you need the other side of the coin, right? Yeah. Yeah, and the, the um, sort of cold hard <laughs> evidence, I guess. Uh, they they of course all of this stuff is, should be tempered because we're talking about humans here, and unlike when we're looking at space and we're counting photons, we know how many photons there are. Whereas humans are a little bit more difficult to test, like babies looking at a picture more I, preferentially I, than another one. So weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, I'm I'm pretty sure I've read a very similar um, there was experiment one. with chimps. Um, yes, so like, that's one of the arguments uh, is, uh, against this is that it's you know it's uh, ingrained, therefore it should be seen at a young age that we're different, just like in other apes. And they do similar things with chimps, and they also have mm. there's an extremely biased study similar to this on whether boys and girl babies prefer to look at a a mobile with boy things on it and a mobile with girly things on it. I think they just like it so it moves, right? <laughs> yes, but the thing is as well, there was a human holding it. So oh, if, uh, if you're a human holding it and you have a boy, then you're also biased. Yeah. So you say, oh yes, the boy looked at it for 10 seconds compared to the other thing which they looked at for two seconds. You so just have to put a camera on it, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and whether the actual person holding the things is a man or a woman makes a difference. It, yeah. It's just... Well, they're far more likely to look at the woman at that age, right? Because it's like, mum. Well, this this is why all parenting should should be replaced by a featureless robot. (laughs) Yes, of course. Like the one they're putting on the ISS. Uh, yes, about yes, a little yes, while ago. Yes, with a floating face. Yeah. <laughs> well, that doesn't sound terrifying at all. Did you see the, um, there was a, I was, like, I, I, this might have come out actually as part of the Twitter thing around mm-hmm. this. Yeah, no, anyway, so there was um, a tweet from Libby Jackson who found a, oh, they, they, have, they haven't called that, they haven't, she hasn't named the company, but there's, there's, Tins of tins with like labelled with boy stuff, asterisk Lego space stuff, secret weapon something mouldy, and then another box with girl treasures. Oh, and so the boy stuff, the the logo is a rocket, blue rocket, 
The Girl Treasures is a pink unicorn which contains sparkly things, magic stuff, and something pink and fluffy. And it's just like a lot of people have replied with, but there's a Lego Women of NASA set, which like just, like. Which I have. Probably. Yeah, <laughs> there, there are so many floating around in our office. I'll say yeah. Jeffy's got them. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> but yeah, like it's there's so it's, much it's everywhere. nonsense. Yeah. You, you can't escape it. And that's, that's why, like I say, as soon as you're born, there's biases. As soon as you're born, even before you're born, if your parents know your gender before you're born, because as soon as you're born, it's pink or blue. Pink balloons, blue balloons. Just go for immediately. green. Green is an objectively better colour anyway. My favourite colour. So, yeah, so I guess, I guess I would recommend reading this paper if you have an interest in this stuff, because it ha- even just the, I, I nearly got lost down the reference rabbit hole by opening every paper that it's linked to, but I managed to restrain myself and get it prepared in time for this recording. Well done. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So, from gender inequality to Mars. Yeah. Josh is going to talk about whether it's hashtag worth it to go to Mars. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, this came out of a question that I got from a Sigborn student who was trying to do her extended project qualification, EPQ, which is for those that aren't in the UK, it's like a qualification of, here, do something that's outside of the curriculum, go and learn, do a little research project, basically. Like an extra credit. Yeah, kind of. And she sent me a few questions of, like, basically, do you think it's worth establishing a colony on Mars? Question one, do you think it's worth establishing a colony on Mars? Two, do you think the resources could be used better elsewhere? And three, will the benefits make it worthwhile? What will be the biggest benefits from going to Mars. So I thought, I've said answers to this, but uh, I, I thought it could be quite fun to have like an actual discussion of this. I think we should do one question at a time because mm. I've already forgotten what the first question was. <laughs> so question one is, do you think it's worth establishing a colony on Mars? Personally, yes. In the long run, it's probably something that we should do, but my I, I have a caveat for that for question two, which is I don't think it's worth doing it right now. Personally, I think it's a much longer-term goal. Well, that, that is what it is, though, right? Yeah, but no, but it, it's at the same time, like right now, in space exploration, Mars is the big new target. Mm. Everyone is going, Mars, let's go to Mars, let's put a person on Mars, let's go and live on Mars. Well, I think the plan's to try and establish something on the moon as like a... There are no there are no actual plans of this, and the, so this this is what I think we should be doing instead right now. I'm pretty sure NASA have at least publicly said this a lot. They, that they are they, planning on, or not? Maybe there's no like actually written down plans, but they've definitely said they have. They have got an interest in trying to establish something on the moon as like a, you know, good test. Because <laughs> <laughs> otherwise, you're kind of putting all your eggs in one basket because it's going to take you a long time to get to Mars, right? Um, <laughs> I, I guess it's interesting to note though that while this is the big new thing now, I think it's been every ten years since about 1970, someone has said in the next 10 years, we're going to go to Mars. So, I mean, it's just one of those things. It's like the SKA building deadline. It just keeps getting... I can't, I can't say it. No, it's James Webb. Yeah, James Webb. That's actually been postponed this week. It's been postponed again to 2021. Yeah. I, wait, hang on. I thought that happened about four weeks ago. Like, oh, was it, it four weeks ago? Later. I don't know. I, I only saw the article. Anyway, so it, keeps it might have been four weeks ago. Time is nebulous when you're <laughs> on yeah. podcast. So, so every 10 years, some, some famous person or rich person or president because I think the first person who said it was a president, says, in 10 years we're going to go to Mars. So I think 
that, as Josh says, an immediate plan, maybe not so much. And I think for me, I don't know if worth it or for the humanity or something like that is a bit strong for me. I think it's worth it because it's cool. It's and I think human curiosity is, is mm. super amazing. That's what got everyone interested in science in the first place. Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, so Caveman science hit this rock against that other rock because well, it's, it's, it's cool. It's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's that, but there's also, there's no one really alive in science today has a memory of the moon landings. Mm-hmm. But the, moon, the Apollo missions were something that kind of inspired an entire generation of scientists. I don't think I that's don't think true. From my parents' age, remember it. Yeah, that's not definitely that not true. We <laughs> saw Ben remember it, right? 69 yeah. is no, not no, that long ago, no, right? Okay, okay fine, um. fine. I, I will rephrase that in the the people coming through now. Oh, like, yeah. oh our age, yeah. like the junior PhD. Scientists. Yeah, yeah. Ju- ju- junior, junior scientists, scientists yeah. who will be the forerunners. Yeah. yeah. We don't actually... We don't we have anything, anything yeah, that scale that's, that's at all. That's true. Yeah, that is yeah. true. We, we have nothing to look to. Like, Certainly I, in exploration. In, expo- yeah. in exploration, yeah. for the, like, which is effectively science for the sake of science, right? Mm. I think the only other science for the sake of science that I can really think of that's got like a big like following, I guess, is the LHC, like the Large Hadron Collider, which kind of gets mentioned every now and again. But, like, but it's still got a bit of a... I, I don't think it has outside, re, out, really outside of our circles. Mm. You're a cosmologist, right? Yeah, but it's not really cosmology. Oh, it's you mean public interest? Yeah, science like like public public interest. I'm going to say all of radio astronomy is science for the sake of science. Yeah, but like like sort of, but I'm I'm talking like the the stuff that people like. Oh, they'll be mad for me to say that. <laughs> but like 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 the sort of big science projects <laughs> that you people can sit down at home. Um, and really with, be interested with, in yeah. so pe- people who are not scientists can sit with their kids and just watch mm-hmm. these people take off in a huge rocket I, like that is so big yeah. like I, I hadn't quite processed how big the Saturn V rocket was until I built the Lego model of it. <laughs> um, but the, like we don't have something like that Yeah. and for the sake of inspiring an entire new generation of people by saying actually look no you can just do this Mm-hmm. Like we we're told all the time that no you can't do this austerity this there's no money this what about like how how dare you how dare you try and build a science experiment when there are people starving on the streets you can do both and you don't need I mean the UK well last time I checked this was like the sixth richest country in the world Say, saying to people that you can't do this sort of thing is pointless because mm-hmm. we can and we should that yeah, for but me whether is, we can now is a different question. Mm, yeah. And whether we should now is a different question as well, but I think we should be striving towards it. Yeah. But that's but basically like, but what that's is happening, right? Like, like, they're planning to go. They're not suggesting they're going to do it anytime soon, I don't think. Well, but it's like, a very long-term plan. But I, I think that's cool. Then, yeah. as, as, say, a primary school student now, you could be dreaming about working on the rocket that's going to go... Mm. Well, it's not not even that. I mean, like when between it being the one in it. So, yeah, you, you, yeah. You, you, you could be we the one in it. That's, that's another question <laughs> that we should have. Yeah. But like the, I mean, the announcement. Who was it? Was it Kennedy? Yeah, it was. Ken- was it Kennedy that announced uh, within the decade we're going to put a man on the moon? Like so ni- 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 nineteen sixty, I think it was. He like he said, right, yeah. we're going to do this, and it just took one leader to say we're going to do it within a decade, and they did. Personally, I think like the long term goal of it is like. The whole the whole point is kind of curiosity, but also there is the long term species survival argument. I'm, I'm not sure. Curiosity <laughs> on Mars. I know. <laughs> um. Um, I, I'm not sure. So for me, I, I'm not sure for the long term survival of humanity if that's 
really viable. I mean, there's a lot of terrible things that you have to deal with if you want to go to Mars. And I'm not sure if if we want to have to deal with that as a, as a colony. I think it would be better to deal with the Earth as mm. it is now. And I think... It's whether you could cultivate things there, right? Which is a massive issue. Mm. Yeah, and you'd have to basically live underground because the radiation, it doesn't have an atmosphere or magnetosphere, so that's a huge problem. Well, it's a very thin atmosphere, yeah. I should not say that. Well, it, it, defi- it definitely has an atmosphere. It's currently full of dust. How did yeah. Matt Damon live there for so long? <laughs> <laughs> I think, actually, he was just in Nevada. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, moving on slightly, do we think that resources could be better used elsewhere? Personally, yeah. But there um, are other resources. There, well. are, there, are, there are other resources, but like I... So, the reason I say yes is because... I think we should be aiming to go to the moon because it's closer. If stuff goes wrong, you can fix it. And also, you can then use it as like a stepping stone. But I would argue that that, I I think that's already part of their plan. I realise you've said that's not written anywhere. I I think that is. Well, so I've looked this up. I've found a... I don't think it's part of their plan. There's many issues with going to the moon that I think people don't realise. For example, the dust that was kicked up from when all of the Apollo missions went to the moon has only just recently settled because the moon doesn't have very strong gravity and it's covered in basically fine sand. Every time you take a step or land on it, it kicks up a huge amount of dust. And if we sent a whole heap of missions there, the moon would end up as a fuzzy ball because it takes well, so long for the dust to settle. you suggesting a whole heap of missions. But, but if you wanted to build something yeah. on there, you'd have to, yeah. or cover it in concrete so the dust doesn't, cut, I mean, it doesn't come up. There's also massive benefits of doing science off the moon as well, though, right? Yeah, radio astronomy. As a radio yeah. astronomer, no I would so love to have something on the moon. Well, there's um, the, so the, the Breakthrough Starshot mission. Yeah. Um, one of the suggestions for where to put the lasers for it, so these are like the tiny, the sort of solar sails that are accelerated with lasers and thrown out to all of the different planetary systems. That Can we please do a radio telescope first before lasers for light sails? No. <laughs> <laughs> Is to put them on the backside of the moon because they would have to be so powerful that if any one nation took hold of them, mm-hmm. you could destroy a city. Right, so, so for radio astronomy, <laughs> with a less destroyer of worlds mm-hmm. kind of Death Star feel, the dark side of the moon, the, what's typically called the dark side of the moon, even though it's not actually dark all the, the time. Far the, the far moon. side of the moon, I like that better, is the on, one of the only radio quiet, if not the only radio quiet parts of the solar system, because it's always pointed away from us, because we make a lot of radio noise far side of the moon, especially since it doesn't rotate towards us ever, mm-hmm. would be amazing for radio astronomy. And but you get rid of your precipital water vapor as well, don't you? So it's great yep. for atmosphere. It doesn't have an ionosphere, which mm-hmm. is all the electrons in our um, atmosphere, which messes with your low frequency mm-hmm. stuff. You wouldn't have to worry about the 10 megahertz limit because it's outside of the atmosphere. So for radio astronomy, the moon would be amazing. Mm-hmm. But getting So the problem with radio astronomy is you'd need to put a giant supercomputer up there, and that would be expensive and difficult. So... There's pros and cons to all of these things, but I, I mean, it I think it's not. It would mean that helpful. you would no longer have to do satellite missions quite so frequently, then, though. Yeah. Like, because it, it, it's like a base where you can, if if you could set up a base there, it's somewhere where you can constantly just keep updating the instruments which are built, already built, working, fix them a little bit, etc., add to them. Like, it, 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 that's why it would be so much better. Because you're not having to just ditch your billion-pound satellite once yeah. it's finished its mission and let it float off into space. Yeah, well, I mean, reusable. Like, yeah, it's reusable. Um, but in like in response to your um, point about the dust and things, it doesn't have to be a land base. You 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 can build like a huge space station 
type thing. Mm. That's like just, anchored to the what? moon, you mean? Which is in orbit around the moon. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Like, we have the ISS. Yeah. And if, and yes, the ISS is old, but if still you, it's still going, and it's going to be still going for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. And if you're using a, if you're building effectively, I guess, you can view it as like a cross between a hotel and a petrol station. It's it's a service station, right? Like with, I don't know, M&S food and a McDonald's or something, which is inevitably where we will end up. But yeah. the And definitely a Starbucks. And, oh, and a robot with a creepy smiley face. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Niall. <laughs> You're going to regret having that as your odd end. I'm, I'm going to regret ever presenting with you. Is what I'm going to regret. <laughs> But yeah, like you, you can, you can just, you can just, he says, um, with no money or access to rockets, um, you can just build a, an orbital space station instead. Yeah, um, that would make more sense. With to start with, especially. yeah, to start with at least. But like, it, you can then use that to subsequently build your rockets. Mm. You can build your rockets in orbit around the moon, and you need far less fuel yeah. to actually launch to yeah. Mars or whatever. Mm-hmm. And Ooh. you can then. Do use the same technology that you've just developed to make an orbital station around Mars that has like ferries between them. Like, yes, it will cost more money in the short term, but in the long term, it will make everything so much more sustainable and viable. I still ain't up for going to Mars though. I, <laughs> I don't know if in like fifty years there's a small colony there, but it's like one way ticket and it's kind of established. I think I would be open to it. I think very strongly no. Fair. Oh no, because you you can't go outside. Yeah, you can. Well, because you have to be underground to escape the radiation. You can't go outside outside very long because the radiation is terrible. You would just die of cancer. It's dusty and horrible, and you're stuck Sounds in a like tin can. Sounds <laughs> like my fart. I guess student accommodation yeah. sounds similar. We should probably move on. What was the final question? Uh, will, will, yeah, the final question was: Will the benefits make it worthwhile? What's the biggest benefit that we can see from going to Mars? Cool. Yeah, it's cool. Like, I like. There's, there's no. I mean, science for the sake of science is important. Have you found any cool mineral things? Well, yeah. So, so here? I. I feel yeah, recently, right? Yeah, very recently. Yeah, I, I actually like spoke about it on the June extra, which is actually going to turn out to be the July extra. So the next episode after <laughs> this one, um, I talk about it, uh, or it might be the one before this. A big announcement recently. Yeah, there was a yeah. big announcement recently. But like, I think it's kind of. Science for the sake of science is something that's really important to just mm. do. Blue sky mm. research, right? Blue, blue sky research. So, like, mm. radio astronomy, for instance, is the foundation for Wi-Fi. Yeah. Like, the, the number of times that I have been questioned about why should we bother doing your, like, your research over the internet <laughs> is... is it's so, like, like, so how did you email me? How did you email me? You <laughs> used Wi-Fi on the internet. The Wi-Fi was basically developed... Partially a job for bank, I think. Mm-hmm. And internet was developed. And internet was developed as such. Yeah. Wi-Fi was a CSIRO <laughs> researcher at the Westerbork Synthesis <laughs> Radio Telescope in the Netherlands. There we go. As an Australian, I'm very proud that they were an Australian. Um, and <laughs> as someone that worked in the Netherlands, also. Yes, yes, also yes. worked with Westerbork. <laughs> I, I think it's also interesting that, like, even radio astronomy again is pushing big data further than. Mm. W- I mean, we didn't conceive of the issues that we would be having now. For example, the Square Kilometre Array will be putting out more data in a second than the entire internet right now, per second, is going to be making that. So so I guess radio astronomy and astronomy in general... (laughs) (laughs) We push technology forward with the questions that we ask, but also that doesn't... I don't necessarily think that that needs to be the reason. I think also just for fun and because it's awesome. Mm. 
it's the same way cool in the art. For fun and awesome things end up with yes, all these exactly. extra interesting, useful things, right? Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Anyway, I think we should probably move on. So uh, we're going to move now to Ian Morrison with this month's Night Sky. I have no convoluted link, so just here's Ian. The Night Sky for July 2018. Well, I guess the nights are getting slightly longer, so that could be a good thing. Let's start with what we might see just with our eyes or perhaps with binoculars looking up at the heavens. The bright star Arcturus at the bottom end of the constellation Bootes is setting towards the western horizon after dark. Leo is probably just disappearing below the horizon at the time. Moving over reasonably high elevation towards the east, we first come to the constellation of Hercules with its lovely globular cluster M13, and then over to the very bright star Vega in the very small constellation of Lyra the Lyre. Below Lyra is the constellation of Aquila with its bright star Altair, and up to its left is the bright star Deneb in Cygnus. And those three stars make up, as I'm sure you know, what's called the Northern Triangle. With binoculars, if you move upwards from Altair, about a third of the way towards Vega, you actually cross a dark part of the Milky Way called the Cygnus Rift. And in there, you might spot an upside-down coat hanger. That's what it's normally called, but it's actually Brocky's Cluster. Down to the left of Cygnus is a beautiful little constellation, Delphinus the Dolphin. Do have a look for that. And then finally, rising over in the east and getting higher as the night progresses is the square of Pegasus, the inverted flying horse. So there are some nice things to see and of course as we'll see we have a fair number of planets available to look at during the month of July. So let's look at them. Well first of all Jupiter. It can be seen in the south after sunset at the start of the month and over towards the southwest as month progresses. It shines at magnitude minus 2.3, falling a little bit to minus 2.1 during the month. It has a disk some 41.5 arc seconds across, which of course is also falling to about 38 arc seconds. The equatorial bands and sometimes the great red spot can be seen. And in the night sky page, just put in night sky jodrell to find it, I have a list of some of the best times in the evenings of July where the red spot will be on the meridian facing us. Sadly, moving slowly westwards in Libra during the month, Jupiter is heading for the southern part of the ecliptic and will only have an elevation of about 20 degrees when crossing the meridian. So what's called atmospheric dispersion will thus hinder our view and it might be worth considering the purchase of a ZWO atmospheric dispersion corrector to counter its effects. But well, what about Saturn? Saturn was at opposition on the 27th of June, so it'll be visible during all the few hours of darkness. It'll be highest in the south around midnight as July begins, a little earlier by month's end. The disk has an angular size of 18.4 arc seconds, falling a bit during the month. Its brightness reduces from plus naught to plus 0.2 as the month progresses. Now the rings were at their widest some months ago and still at 26 degrees to the line of sight 
are very well open, spanning around two and a half times the size of Saturn's globe. Saturn is lying in Sagittarius, not far from the topmost star of the teapot, and is slowly moving in retrograde to within a few degrees of M8, the Lagoon Nebula, and M20, the Triffid Nebula. Sadly, again, it will only reach an elevation of just over 15 degrees above the horizon when crossing the meridian. It's going to be down in the southern part of the ecliptic for quite some time. Perhaps it's time to emigrate to perhaps New Zealand or Australia, where it's beautifully high in the sky, as I saw last year. Mercury, shining at around zeroth magnitude early in the month, reaches greatest elongation west of the sun on July the 12th. That's when we see it in the evening. It'll then be seen about 15 degrees down to the lower right of Venus, but will have dimmed to magnitude plus one by the 17th of the month, and will then rapidly fade from view into the sun's glare. Mars, in Capricornus, is moving in retrograde motion westwards as it moves towards its closest approach to Earth since 2003, on the night of July the 30th, 31st. It begins the month rising about two hours after sunset, shining at magnitude minus 2.2, but its brightness peaks at minus 2.8 during the final week of July. Its angular size reaches 24.3 arc seconds at closest approach, will exceed 24 arc seconds from July the 24th until August the 8th. So it's the best time in principle to see Mars for quite some time. However, of course, it will only reach an elevation of about 14 degrees when due south. So sadly, as for both Jupiter and Saturn, the atmosphere will hinder our view. Well, finally, Venus. Well, Venus can be seen low in the west after nightfall, sinking towards the horizon as the month progresses. During the month of July, its illuminated face thins from 70% to 57%. But at the same time, the angular diameter of the disk is increasing from 16 to 20 arc seconds. The surface area reflecting the sun's light thus stays roughly constant, and so the brightness stays at around minus 4.2. On the 9th of July, as we'll see, Venus is close to Regulus and Leo, and on the 15th, close to a waxing crescent moon. So finally, what about some highlights of the month? July, it's still a great month to view Jupiter. It came into opposition on May the 8th, some time ago, and will be visible in the south in late evening. It is moving down the ecliptic and now lies in Libra, so sadly will only reach an elevation of about 20 degrees when crossing the meridian from the UK. I was in fact imaging it uh, from southern Spain, and it was much higher an interesting observation is that the great red spot appears to be diminishing in size. At the beginning of the last century, it spanned some 40,000 kilometres across, but now appears to be only about 16,500 kilometres across, less than half the size. The shrinking rate appears to be accelerating. Maybe it will eventually disappear. Now, I've imaged Jupiter recently, and the red spot is very prominent, has a lovely orange-red colour, now, those images, not brilliant because it's low in the sky, can be seen in an article on imaging Jupiter at closest approach, which can be found in the Astronomy Digest that I write, and there's a link to that 
on the night sky page. Well, Saturn is only just past opposition, so it's now due south and highest in the sky in the late evening. It lies, as I said, close to the topmost star of the teapot in Sagittarius. Held steady, binoculars should enable you to see Saturn's brightest moon, Titan, at magnitude 8.2. A small telescope will show the rings with magnifications of times 25 or more, and one of 6 to 8 inches aperture, with a magnification of about 200, as long as you have a night of good seeing, will show Saturn and its beautiful ring system in its full glory. The thing that makes Saturn stand out is, of course, its ring system. The two outermost rings, A and B, are separated by a gap called Cassini's division, which should be visible in a telescope of four or more inches aperture, if the seeing conditions are good. Lying within the B ring, but far less bright and difficult to spot, is the C, or crate ring. Due to the orientation of Saturn's rotation axis of 27 degrees with respect to the plane of the solar system, the orientation of the rings, as seen by us, changes as it orbits the Sun. And twice each orbit they lie edge on to us, and so can hardly be seen. This last happened in 2009, and they are now well opened out, currently at about 26 degrees to the line of sight. The ring's orientation is beginning to narrow until in March 2025 they will appear edge on again. Well, some other things to look for. On the night sky site I show you how to find the globular cluster in Hercules M13 and also spot the double-double star in Lyra. That's rather nice. With binoculars a binary star is seen but when observed with a telescope each of these two stars is revealed to be a double star, hence the name. And early in July, you have a chance to spot what are called noctilucent clouds. And they're most commonly seen in the deep twilight towards the north from our latitude. They are the highest clouds in the atmosphere at heights of around 80 kilometers or 50 miles, normally too faint to be seen. They are visible when illuminated by sunlight from below the northern horizon, whilst the lower parts of the atmosphere are in shadow. So do try and have a look around midnight if you're up. Look towards the north and you may just see them. And some quick things. On July the 3rd around 2.30am if you happen to be up you can see Mars with a waning gibbous moon. On July the 9th after sunset, that's easier, Venus will be close to Regulus in Neo as I said earlier. On July the 10th before dawn again pretty early the moon is passing through the Hyades cluster in Taurus. On July the 15th after sunset, Venus will be seen to the left of a very thin crescent moon. That will be quite a challenging observation, I think. Somewhat easier, on July the 19th after sunset, Jupiter will lie below a waxing gibbous moon. And finally, on July the 24th after sunset, Saturn will be close to a waxy moon. Well, on July the 27th, after sunset, we have what may be the, the best highlight of the month, in fact. It's a total eclipse of the moon. So if it's clear, try and get yourself with a site where there's a very good low horizon in the southeast. And about 8.50 BST, you should see a blood-red moon rise.
it rises higher over the next hour or so at 9.21 is the time of maximum eclipse and at 10.13 the moon moves out of the umbra and part of it into the penumbra so that's the end of the total eclipse at 11.19 that partial eclipse ends the moon has left the earth's umbra and lost its red colour and finally at 12.28 the penumbral eclipse ends and the moon has moved totally out of the earth's shadow. So let's really hope it's going to be clear that night. You might ask, why does the moon look a sort of a deep, dusky red colour? Well, if you were an astronaut on the surface of the moon, looking back at the earth during the total eclipse, you'd see a black disc, that was the earth, but around it would be a red rim, and that is the sunlight that's been refracted round through the atmosphere. It's lost its blue light, because that's been scattered, giving our blue skies above. So we see that lovely red colour. If there's been a major volcanic explosion, as with Mount St. Helens some time ago, there's so much dust in the atmosphere that almost no light gets around the Earth's surface, and you can barely see the moon. So let's keep our fingers crossed. It's a lovely thing to see when it does happen. All the very best. So there are some things to look for this month. And of course, as the months progress beyond, we have more hours of darkness. Good hunting. Uh, Thanks for that, Ian. Um, And now this is the bit about the Antipodes that was alluded to at the start. So I always found it odd when I came to Europe that people would call me Antipodean, and I have never heard an Australian or Kiwi refer to themselves as that. And to be honest, I came to Europe and someone said, we finally got an Antipodean in the Amsterdam Institute. And I went, oh, what now? What the heck is that? So and I looked it up. An Antipodean uh, or something described as Antipodean is from Australia or New Zealand specifically or something relating to Australia or New Zealand. So I personally think we should cut it from Jodcast because not every Southern Hemisphere listener is in Australia and New Zealand. There's other Southern Hemisphere places. I mean, I know the Northern Hemisphere wouldn't believe that. But there are actually many places in the Southern Hemisphere that aren't Antipodean. Um, And I also then got uh, stuff looking at what an antipode is. And an antipode is the place on the Earth that's exactly opposite. So if you draw a line from the place that you're in, say Manchester, through the centre of the Earth to the other side, then that's the antipode. And there's a website called www.antipodesmap.com where you can look up the antipode of your location. So I, of course, now that I was in this rabbit hole, had to look up what it is for Manchester and the antipode of Manchester is just a chunk of ocean to the southeast of New Zealand's South Island. So if we said uh, Antipodean and we really meant it by the definition of the word, we'd be talking to anyone on a boat in the middle of the ocean to the southeast of New Zealand, and I feel like that doesn't really sum up our Southern Hemisphere listeners. So it's a bit of an Arabah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so instead, I'm gonna just say for our listeners down under, because I have to. Um, here's Gabby Perez with the night sky where you are. Kia ora, everyone. Gabriela Perez here from Space Place at the Carter Observatory here in Wellington, New Zealand. Uh, the winter continues here in Wellington, New Zealand, and with it comes the season of Matariki, the Māori New Year, as well as spectacular views of our planet and plenty of hours of nights to gaze at the night sky. 
So in July, all the visible planets will be in our sky. Mercury will set with the sun in the west, appearing very close to the brilliant evening star Venus. High up in the sky will be the orange Jupiter in the constellation of Libra, followed by Saturn in Sagittarius in the bulge of our Milky Way, roughly in the location of the centre of our galaxy. And Mars will be found in Capricornus. Mars will be the closest it has been to Earth since 2003 when we pass it at the end of July. The brightest stars in our night sky, Sirius and Canopus, can be found in the southwest, both twinkling as they're quite close to the horizon. Canopus will appear to change in color as its light is quite dispersed and appears to separate into separate colors as it is close to the horizon, marking itself as a bit of a traffic light of our south skies. In the north, we can spot Cancer the Crab, along with Leo the Lion. I always thought Leo looked a bit like a coat hanger in its stick figure form, and Cancer a bit like a Y. Um, difficult to spot Cancer, though, because Cancer is the dimmest of the zodiac constellations. This is where your overt vision would come in very handy to see some of the uh, trickier objects in the sky. The brightest star in this constellation is only about magnitude 3.5, to give you an idea. Cancer is home to some famous deep sky objects, including M66 and the Beehive Cluster. M66 can be found between the midpoint between Regulus and Leo and Prochylum in Canis Minor. It is the oldest close star cluster. It's about 3.5 to 5 billion years, which is quite incredible, as stars generally tend to pull away from their sister stars in an open cluster uh, quite quickly. For contrast, we can see below it the Beehive Cluster, which is aged at only 600 million years. In the south, we find some spectacular views of our Milky Way, along its peppered with dark patches, marking the location of dark nebulas. They're quite visible to us because of the high concentrations of stars and the subsequent light in this edgewise view of our Milky Way. The most visible of these is the Colsack Nebula, this densely packed pillar of gas and dust could actually ignite one day, much like coal itself. Within us um, are all the right conditions for stars to be born. For now, it's one of the darkest patches in our sky, but in a few million years, it could be the brightest. Um, of course, you can use this to find the crux or the Southern Cross, which is always a favorite to find here in the Southern Hemisphere. But a more reliable method would be to use the pointer stars, the orange Alpha and the blue Beta Centauri. These are the brightest stars in the constellation of Centaurus. Alpha is actually a triple star system, and its dimmest star just off to the side is our closest stellar neighbor, Proxima Centauri, at only 4.2 light years away. The heliacal rising of the Pallides star cluster, Matariki, marks the time of the Māori New Year, and we can find it in our dawn sky, which has a particular importance to us here in New Zealand, as the dawn sky, as opposed to the evening sky, was the one that was closely studied by the early Māori astronomers. At this time of the year, in the dawn, we can see the four pillars, or pao, three in the east, which is Sirius, the Pallides, and Orion's belt, and a lonely pillar in the west, Scorpius, with a curved back, the weight of the sky is crushing down on it. The belt of Orion is easily spotted just before sunrise, and we use this to point us to the Pallides or Matariki. Matariki is found in the shoulder of the bull um, in the constellation of Taurus. It is a young star cluster, only 100 million years old, 
mostly consistent of giant hot blue stars. It's quite a rare sight to be able to pick up so many stars in an individual cluster with the naked eye. We usually can see around nine. I think that's all for me from here in New Zealand. To the New Zealanders who are listening, remember to keep warm, and I hope you have a happy Matariki season, and I wish everyone clear skies in the month of July. Thanks for that, Gabby. And now on to the feedback. We've got a couple of bits of feedback, actually. We've got an email from Lindsay, who says they are very pleased to see us back online. Um, so in April, we had a bit of a server outage. We are back, if you're listening to this. I always appreciate your bi-monthly episodes and look forward to the next one. Best wishes. We should just say at this point, lots of us are at various conferences, so we're generally around this time of year, we just do one episode. You might be lucky and get two this month because of last month's not coming out. But, cool. Okay, from uh, Facebook, we have a uh, message from Martin Bancroft, who has said, as suggested in the intro... Uh, and uh, it's been pointed out that this is the intro to the Ewas Nam special. I listen to the show while awake. Good stuff. We do appreciate it when you listen when you're awake. Yes. Um, there, there was a... <laughs> this is a tweet, isn't it? Yeah, there, there, there were a few tweets about us being really good for insomnia. Um, oh, oh, I did hear about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sure. Well, I'm glad that some of you are listening while awake, and if you're listening while not awake, we well, you're still a listener, so great. That's yeah. brilliant yep. as well. Still numbers for us. <laughs> yeah, and absorbing some astronomy, maybe. Just mm-hmm. cool dreams about travelling to Mars or something. Alrighty, and if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. Twitter, twitter.com slash jodcast. Facebook at facebook.com forward slash jodcast. YouTube at youtube.com forward slash jodcast. Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts and the address is on the website. Send us postcards. We like postcards. And it is the summer for us. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And thanks to Emma Alexander for the interview. The editors were Jake Starberg Morgan, Andrea Degaru, Emma Alexander and Tom Scragg. And the producer this month is Josh Hayes. So until next time, John!